This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're revisiting a 2017 entry in our chaplain series, Resilience and Retreat, with guest host Ruth Morris. A good deal of the work is actually about managing your own heart, managing your own mind, getting yourself out of the way to be fully present to the patient who's before you. That's Trace Haythorn, director of the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. He's our guide through our exploration of the lives and work of chaplains. Before the break, we met a Buddhist monk who wants to bring Zen philosophy beyond the bedside in a way that transforms caregiving itself. This more mindful approach is gaining traction, not just with chaplains, but with doctors and nurses who might be vulnerable to empathy fatigue. This model of care is often referred to as contemplative care. In the palliative world especially, we talk about being present with patients, trying to put it into a place where we are in this together and I'm, I'm joining humans in this mortal thing that we're doing because I too am mortal. My guests are Craig Blinderman, the director of Adult Palliative Care Service and an associate professor at Columbia University Medical Center, and Tim Ford, a Buddhist chaplain who instructs medical students at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. He's also a fellow at the Transforming Chaplaincy Project. And is this a new term, contemplative care? It's something that I've only heard used recently. This idea that um, being present, as Tim was saying, using mindfulness and other meditation practices to allow us to be more connected uh, in the moment with patients and ourselves is really the heart of this practice. So we don't see it as anything new or different, but just how we um, integrate that into our lives and into into the care of patients and for ourselves. And Dr. Blinderman, you wrote in a recent Huffington Post article that our current healthcare system has an empathy problem. What do you mean by that? So, you know, we know that at least in among uh, in our medical education uh, studies and and throughout medical training, when when you look at students and residents over time, they actually lose empathy um, based on various models or tools of studying that. And, And what it manifests as is a number of things. One is the attention that's being paid to patients and their families uh, is often lessened. The ability to connect with others and risk becoming burned out is actually greater and I've even found that there's an association with medical errors, that it's actually a safety concern. And I think another way of uh, looking at contemplative care practices is that rather than separating oneself and being less affected by what's happening, how can we be more affected and more in, in, included in what's actually going on in each moment? And in that way, we've actually seen uh, there's some studies and some evidence to suggest that using meditation and other kinds of approaches to connect actually enhances empathy, which is not terribly surprising. But I think it actually has and could have some real potential for medical training and for uh, helping our healthcare system. Uh, where many people will feel that their doctors are not listening to them, 
You know, I often hear that from patients of mine. They say, you know, no one's listening to me. And that's a symptom of an empathy problem. And in that same article, you, you mentioned medical errors. You say clinical burnout has been shown to, not surprisingly, lead to an increase in medical errors, which is currently the third leading cause of death in the U.S. Tim, did you have anything to add to that real quickly? I, I really appreciate the point that this isn't just about um, teaching physicians or, or any provider to survive better in the environment. It is about embracing the parts of this that can help us sustain things. When I teach M1s and M2s in their first and second year of medical school, they're all bright-eyed and beautiful people who are very, very driven to be compassionate caregivers. That's what they came into this for, most of them. But then when they are faced with the terrifying prospect of if they are not thinking ahead on a large checklist of things, someone could die. Mm -hmm. And when you hit them with that, they become terrified and they get caught in that um, sense of what happens next. And the real point I like to drive home to them at that point is if you are caught in what comes next in, in that, in that um, distraction, you won't get the parts of this that are really worth it. Um, you can sustain yourself for short periods of time on bursts of adrenaline and feeling like you're a very skilled provider, but you cannot sustain yourself over a career. In order to sustain yourself over a career of dealing with other people's tragedy, which is very, very hard work, you have to find something that sustains it for you. Okay, and help me understand, Dr. Blinderman, what physician burnout feels like. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, I came pretty close, I have to say. You know, it's this feeling of uh, hopelessness that comes into your day, this feeling that, um, you know, my, you know, I'm going through the day starting to feel maybe disconnected, feeling like I'm not feeling my full self in each moment, um, starting to become depressed, uh, saddened by the situation, maybe even feelings of not wanting to go to work, not wanting to engage. Um, and it can be really a terrifying uh, realization that all this work and all this studies and all of your efforts have brought you to this place where you feel hopeless. I, I can imagine that. I mean, you do a lot of training to get where you are. And I want to ask you um, if you could give me a real concrete example of when you've used this model of contemplative care in your medical practice, perhaps a patient who comes to mind where you've really been happy with the outcome. Well, I, I mean, I, my first response to that is is that while we care about outcomes in medicine, um, that's actually it's um, maybe not something that uh, we should be motivated uh, completely by. Um, and it's in palliative care, it's actually we, it's a big struggle for us. You know, many of our team members will face you know these very challenging problems in the hospital with, you know, trying to help somebody relieve their symptoms, relieve their pain, their, their distress, um, and finding all sorts of ways in which that's not happening. Um, and so one of the things that we, uh, at least that, you know, I think of using contemplative care for is, again, to recognize that in, if you were to look back at each moment, was I fully present? Was I fully there? Was I giving my whole self in this? Or what's holding me back? And then to let go of all the other things that might not manifest, right? All the things that we want, we wish this to happen, we want that to happen, and knowing that that may not be the case. And so I think that's the first step, is um, is actually not focusing so much on the outcomes. I mean, in our practice, we have, for example, at the close of our of our day, we have a, a, a contemplative care chaplain that spends time in our clinic, 
um, and she leads us in a short meditation, usually once a week, where we go, we read the names of all the patients that we've cared for in our clinic. Um, these are patients that walk in to come to see us. Maybe they're also getting their cancer treatments in the same day, or um, and they're facing all sorts of issues with pain or symptom distress or psychological problems. And we allow that moment of saying their names to just resonate with us and to know that whatever we did in that moment with them, whatever impact we had, it's okay. We're not looking to see, did Mrs. Jones depression get better or not um it's more about i was with mrs jones we were all together with her in this moment and we're going to allow that to resonate with us and so i think that's that's the difference and it's a hard one you know it's a hard it's a hard one for medical providers that are so focused on outcomes um but the irony is that if you do that you're more likely to have better outcomes too so you know when you let go of the striving for good outcomes, they may just manifest themselves in any case. So it's, it's a strange kind of, uh, of thing that happens, but uh, I think there's, there's some real truth to that. That's interesting. Ruth? Yes, can, go ahead. Can I say something to that? Because I yes. think that's a good point, Dr. Blenderman. I think there's a paradox here, and we see this especially developmentally, both with, with doctors, I see this, and with chaplains, which is when we first start, uh, what we train the t- chaplains especially to do is to shut up and not come in with things to do, not come in with an agenda, not come in with another intervention, and not to get caught up in how are you going to measure what you did. While the profession is really pushing to have more evidence-based outcomes, there is a large conversation in our profession of not losing that ability to just be present as one of the therapies that we do, of being able to come into a room with no agenda, to come and sit with that person where they are. And like Dr. Blenderman said, the paradox is once you do that well and deeply, then you come up with interventions and things to do and outcomes that are all, I believe, measurable um, and are all much more effective. But you have to start with uh, a practice of being able to be present. Because if you just apply, for instance, mindfulness um, techniques, if I give that to a brand new, fresh out of seminary chaplain who has never sat with patients before and say, one of the things we can do for our patients is to teach them to breathe correctly and and, and count to 10. They're going to do that with every patient because they're so nervous about what can I do for this person. They're going to come in with that stick and use it on every single thing that they see um, as a way of protecting themselves from the anxiety of what do I do next. Mm-hmm. But instead, if we teach them, sit with that patient in that anxiety because they have that anxiety also, and then you may be able to find things that are very effective and helpful. I think it's very important to not put the cart before the horse on this, and especially in training uh, medical professionals and chaplains, we have to be very clear to start with presence and depth of presence before we get into measurable interventions and outcomes. That's that's interesting. When you talk about relationships and depth of presence, that reminds me of another point that Cushion has made in an earlier interview I was reading a transcript from. He was talking about how a lot of patients are sort of isolated and that doctors have commented to him that a patient will come in for some sort of outpatient surgery and call an Uber to go home from the hospital because there's Mm -hmm. no one to pick them up. Or doctors will ask their patients, who are the five friends who could drop everything and be here right now with us if there was a medical emergency? And not all patients can get to five. And in those cases, Cushion said, doctors are actually prescribing going out and building real relationships. (laughs) And I was wondering, if Dr. Blinderman, if that is something that 
you do or something that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. We have a, ver a lot of very isolated patients, and we know also psychodynamically, some of them actually consider us their family. You know, I'm like a father to some, or a boyfriend to others, or a son to others, or my nurse could be a sister to others. I mean, there really is this, these uh, relationships that play out, um, especially when patients are not uh, receiving that sense of community or sense of belonging or love from others in their lives. And we, we certainly have a number of isolated patients. I've been speaking to Dr. Craig Blinderman, Director of Adult Palliative Care Service at Columbia University Medical Center, and to Tim Ford, an instructor at Virginia Commonwealth University and a fellow at the Transforming Chaplaincy Project. Will Coley and Kalalia produced this week's Chaplain's Piece. And we want to send out two very big thank yous. One for L.D. Brown, who composed the music for that story. You can hear more at grayreverend.com. And one for photographer Loris Guzetta, who took some really beautiful pictures for us of Chaplain Koshin Paley Ellison at work. You can see them on our website at interfaithradio.org. You're listening to a rebroadcast of an entry in our special chaplain series. This has inspired a production of Interfaith Voices. 